Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ballot to Talk About. In fact, our final episode of 2023. This week, we'll be looking back at the year that was 2023 in politics, and we'll be asking the big question, who were Sam and Chernhan's pick for Politicians of the Year? It's Sunday, the 17th of December, 2023. Pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify. Not now. I am not a fighter and not a quitter. It's time for a change in this country, my friends. A real change. Let's keep moving. Slava Ukraine! And joining me on the other side of the world, as always, is my co-host Chen. Chen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. A little bit less than the other side of the world compared to our last podcast recording this week. But other than that, I'm sweating even more than I usually am at this time of the day. How are you doing, Sam? Yeah, I'm not too bad. A week to go to Christmas. Indeed, a, a week to go to Christmas and um, everything is winding down a little bit. So very much looking forward to it. And... Just kind of in a reflective mood, Sam, because it is coming quite a year and arguably this year is arguably ramping up for what will be a bumper 2024, isn't it? So it's a good time to reflect and look back, isn't it? It is indeed. I mean, I think 2023 in terms of the like global political cycle is one of those political off years because we don't have any sort of huge elections having taken place in 2023 but we still had a pretty packed electoral calendar and a lot of countries choosing to go sometimes more than once and sometimes for a snap election as well so there's plenty to talk about as we start to review the year yes and let's let's kick off by look before we look at the good bad and everything in between that is politics elections in 2023 i thought sam that it would be a good choice to look back at our 22, 2022 award winners for our various categories and ask ourselves, how did we fare in 2023? And Sam, I cannot help but look at who you nominated as our rising star <laughs> of the year as a certain oh. Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. That didn't turn out to be very good, isn't it? No, I think I think the less said about that, the better. I think I had him touted as a potential to beat Donald Trump in the Republican primary, and clearly that's not going to happen. So, but I will say, Chern, I, I revisited my notes and I did nominate two people for Rising Star of the Year, and I think one of them is fair because actually earlier in the week we were talking about this person as our potential politician of the year for 2023. So um, that I think is was a fair guess, but Ron DeSantis absolutely was not. Yeah, and, and I look at my 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 choices, the most consequential, important election of the year, that being the Hungarian election and the re-election of Viktor Orban in 2022. And it's safe to say that he is a one-man person in terms of deciding the ultimate fate of many EU policy, in particular foreign policy, isn't it? Particularly the sounds towards Ukraine, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I can't help but think that some of our consequential elections of the year 2023 actually stem their consequences actually stem from that Hungarian election. So that will be interesting to unpack in a short while, Sean. Indeed, it really is. And before we unpack the, the political year that was, I thought in this last podcast, I'll just quickly run through Sam, um, some of the loose ends that we talked about in the podcast in all the podcasts that we've done this year that we haven't gotten round to. So I I would just like to raise four newsworthy items from four different countries around the world. So in New Zealand, National Party leader Christopher Luxon has been sworn in as the new Prime Minister of New Zealand as head of a three-party coalition with ACT and New Zealand First. New Zealand First leader Winston Peters will serve as Foreign Minister and Deputy Prime Minister. Those were positions to held ironically in Jacinda Ardern's first government and that he will hold a position for 18 months before handing the deputy prime ministership over to ACT Party leader and the Minister for Regulation, David Seymour, who has served the last 18 months as deputy prime minister. In Germany, 
the government outcomes of 2023 state elections have become clearer. In Bavaria, uh, Marcus Soider, uh, CS, Christian Social Union, has once again formed a coalition with the free voters of Bavaria and have continued serving in office. In Hesse, the CDU has decided to dissolve the incumbent CDU Greens coalition and has opted for a grand coalition. So, and with negotiations still ongoing as we speak. In Spain, an unlikely outcome, which was that Pedro Sanchez, at, uh, at certainly at certain points during the year, is that Pedro Sanchez, the, the Prime Minister, has been returned after striking an unlikely deal with Junts and its leader, the former Catalan president, uh, Carlos Pogemon, and winning the confidence in the Spanish parliament. And finally, in Queensland, Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk has resigned after just nine years in office and facing the prospect of defeat in the October election that we will cover in 2024. She hands over the position to Deputy Premier and the Minister for State Development, Infrastructure, Local Government and Planning, Stephen Miles, with the Treasurer Cameron Dick becoming the new Deputy Premier. A wider reshuffle of the government is soon to be announced, which we will cover on our Twitter page. So Sam, those four news stories kick us off. Do you have any reactions to any of those four stories? We're going to be talking about Spain a little bit later, I suspect. So in particular, the stories relating New Zealand, Queensland, and Germany, and any other loose ends that you wish to tie up? Yeah, I mean, I think New Zealand is an interesting story because we were talking when we covered that election about exactly what role Winston Peters would play because we thought New Zealand First would have to play a role here and I think to be honest he got a pretty good deal being foreign minister and the first rotation of deputy prime minister given that he is the smallest party in this three-party coalition so clearly um, Christopher Luxon values his um, party's input to this coalition sees it as absolutely essential for the coalition's survival. So I thought that was quite interesting. And Chen Anastasia Palaszczuk, we predicted that she would be gone by the time this election came around. But from my impressions, that her resignation date seemed to come a bit out of the blue. I don't think anybody was particularly expecting it in that moment. Or was did I miss something? No, I think there was a lot of I think the reaction that many people had was surprise at the timing of it, but not the actual act of resignation. I think it 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 came out about as uh, um as she was going. There was a cyclone that's currently working its way through North Queensland, Cyclone Jasper, and she began the press conference really talking about the government's preparations for Cyclone Jasper. And she ended it by announcing the fact that she would resign. And she en- and the other second remarkable thing was the fact she endorsed a successor, which was the Deputy Premier Stephen Miles. And crucially and interestingly, within the functions of the Labour Party, Anastasia Palaszczuk from the right faction endorsed her left faction deputy to be the Premier over her fellow right faction member, Cameron Dick. So I think those were two interesting stories um, at play really here. And it's interesting that in the couple of days that Stephen Miles has been sworn in as Premier, is that he's really tried to change some of the government's messaging to be very much more consultative government, very much focusing on the cost of living, youth crime, um, energy. This is really issues that have been... Um, dogging the current government mm, mm. and acknowledging that potentially a change of approach was needed is quite noti- noticeable. Yeah, and one final um, wrap-up churn that I'll talk about is, I know we did our UK wrap-up a couple of weeks ago, but this week Mark Drakeford resigned as uh, the Welsh First Minister, which actually was one example of politicians keeping their promises because Mark Drakeford when he was elected back in 2018 said that he would serve for five years and he served for exactly five years because he took up the post of first minister on the 13th of December 2018 and announced his intention to resign on the 13th of December 2023 so a promise kept for Mark Drakeford. Yeah we can't really say that about many other promises can we um, plan. I should say as well that uh, we go back to the New Zealand's choice. I think I have to admit that I'm in the current ministry, Winston Peters, despite having less MPs, they have the same number of ministers sitting around the cabinet table, that being three, as 
act. So he's done very well out of the coalition negotiations, I would say. And arguably, you know, if I look at the party leaders' portfolio, I'm pretty sure foreign affairs is a bigger portfolio than the regulation portfolio. So I would argue that even in the allocation of portfolios, I think New Zealand First, despite being the smallest party, have got probably the better spoils of portfolios because they are holding the foreign affairs, oceans, fisheries, regional development, resources portfolio. By contrast, uh, Ag has a regulation, internal affairs, workplace safety, and courts portfolio. So I think of the two, I think I'm... I, would you agree with Sam that New Zealand First has seemed to have gotten more ministers with more significant portfolios around that table? I mean, I wonder if the price was paid by the fact that David Seymour didn't exactly drive a hard bargain in the aftermath of this election because he almost immediately came out of the gates to say, yes, I will support Christopher Luxon in a coalition, whereas Winston Peters had to be convinced. And sometimes um, if you are the person who is the actual kingmaker in this election, you get the spoils. Yeah, absolutely. Um, lots of interesting stories to wrap up. What could be interesting and uh, quite complicated government formations and many innovative government formations that many countries around the world has used, not least in New Zealand, the first time rotating the deputy prime minister shop. So Chen, let's dive into our political awards of 2023. Um, we are going to cover a variety of awards. Chen and I have both put down some nominations for each of the awards and unlike the quiz which we'll be doing later we have seen each other's nominations so um we we do know where this is heading but it'll be interesting to to chat nonetheless because we don't know where the awards what the motivation was so it'll be interesting to have a chat chat where do you want to start so for listeners benefit and those who have been listening to us for a long time is that we basically follow the same categories as what we did in 2022 and apply them for 2023 and the first award that we started with last year, and now this year, is the Did It Happen in 2023 award, uh, given to the political event that we found the most surprising and the most, like, something that blew our minds as two people who watch and follow a lot of politics. And interestingly, Sam, this we had some difficulty in some other categories, but this wasn't one of them, and we came to the same conclusion, didn't we? We did indeed. I mean, we both actually put down two events that we were the like, the, almost the WTF moments of politics 2023. First one being David Cameron's appointment as Foreign Secretary in the latest Conservative front bench reshuffle. And the second being the fact that we had 15 rounds of Speaker election to elect Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House back in January, which is all the more amusing, considering the fact that he is no longer speaker and we've had four additional ballots since then. And considering that he's no longer going to be in the House come the end of the year, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, Chad. Do you want to discuss any motivations for either of those awards, or do they kind of speak for themselves? I think they speak for themselves. I mean, I remember when David Cameron was appointed Foreign Secretary, I think I rarely see you text me this in Messenger, but I think it was an all caps lock text about David Cameron entering number 10 Downing Street. And I was at a I was at a netball game and I remember just being utterly shocked at the news when I read it. And to be honest, there are very few news events where I had to double check that that actually happened. And this was definitely one of them. So absolutely, it was definitely a shock factor. I think... And it was also a short fact, I would say, to Henry Zeffman, Kay Burley, and, and Sam Coates, who were all covering the reshuffle live on television. And their live reaction was very much documented and um, went around Twitter not only that day, but several days itself. And the context of why it's so surprising, Sam, is that former prime ministers, yes, some of them have remained in politics, particularly recent prime ministers, such as Theresa May, Liz Truss are both MPs, for example. Boris Johnson is a col- but but our most problem of prime ministers still have remained commentariats of politics, but from outside the House of Commons. So, for example, Boris Johnson, John Major have both been vocal about various issues they care personally about. Gordon Brown as well helped lead the Better Together campaign. But we haven't seen suddenly in modern politics, i.e., over the last. 30, 40 years or so, a former prime minister coming back into frontline politics. And not only that, Sam, 
after quite a significant delay because he left office in 2016. It's been over seven years since he's been frontline politics, and yet he's back as far as one of the big jobs in government. Absolutely, and I think it's all the more surprising given that there was no real sort of stone-cold evidence that we were going to get this. So it did seem to come completely out of the blue and caught even some of the most experienced political pundits off guard, which I think makes it um, makes it a, a worthy contender for the um, Did That Really Happen award. Absolutely. So uh, th th I think that was the biggest one of all. And Sam, you know, that 15-vote marathon, did you ever doubt that Kevin McCarthy was going to be speaker at any point during those 15 votes? I think you kind of had to, because it was almost surreal what you were seeing. I mean, to put this into context, Chern, I know we talked about this back in January, but this was the first time that a speaker election had gone beyond one ballot since 1923, so 100 years. And it was the longest speaker election since, 1950, since 1859 that spanned into 1860 as well, because I think that um, that ballot went on for something like, how many times did they? 44, 44 ballots they had for that speaker election, which was at the absolute peak of the build-up to the American Civil War, where political parties weren't just disagreeing with each other, they were preparing for armed conflict. That was the kind of divide that was going on in America at the time. So... It's it's just sort of astonishing to even think about this having happened, and yet here we are. Kevin McCarthy hung on for 15 ballots, but sadly could only last eight months. I will say, though, I think we did predict that six months, so he did last two more months than we think, but we were right in the sense that he wouldn't last out of term. And I think I was just reflecting on it, is that A, his perseverance is to be remarked upon, 15 ballots and in the end he was he was dragged kicking and screaming and dared his GOP colleagues to remove him from office. I think what we've seen in recent years is that many often a lot of other political leaders and we've seen this in New Zealand, Australia for several occasions is that leaders who often get there by a, or who are elected at the start of a term seeing how the tea leaves were moving towards the end of their term and the possibility of them being voted out at an election simply choose to take the high road and resign. To a lesser extent, this could possibly relate to Anastasia Palaszczuk and Queensland Labour um, for, as one instance. But instead, Kevin McCarthy decided to actually face his own backbenchers, his own rebellious backbenchers and choose to be voted out that way. I think that is something to be said. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty fair. I mean, I think in the end, Kevin McCarthy had sort of done a deal with the devil. I mean, agreeing that a motion to vacate the chair could be could be declared by one individual member was a recipe for disaster. And given that you fifteen votes it took for these people to come and vote for you, of course they were going to trigger the motion to vacate the chair. So Kevin McCarthy did at the start of the year sign his own death warrant. So. There's there's a part of me that has some some sympathy for how much he held out, but when you create the mess yourself, you can't you can't blame other people for then falling on your sword. I think that's very fair indeed. That one, particularly with how fracturous that margin is, you just couldn't do it. And I think my final observation is that boy, it does make Nancy Pelosi as our female politician of the year much more impressive, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. So Chen. Worst politician of the year. I think we should go there next. 2022 was, of course, won by Liz Truss, um, which was a hands-down winner. But 2023, where are we looking? I think the way we have looked, certainly the way in which I have approached this question, is leaders who, when they were necessarily appointed or elected, where have they taken their party in the opinion poll since then? So I think one of the notable contenders was Chris Hipkins because when he took over at least in the first couple of months he made the New Zealand Labour Party at least competitive following the shock resignation of uh, Jacinda Ardern and to be honest I think that could be a did that happen in 2023 award could easily have gone to Jacinda Ardern um, for resigning when she did although like Palaszczuk the opinion polls have been trending against Jacinda Ardern, which is why she's probably an honourable mention rather than the winner of the award. But in terms of going back to how I framed this, which was taking the party very much when they were started elected in their position or their approval ratings to where they are now, 
I think there are two contenders for this poll, uh, for this award. Both male, one male and one female nominee from in my case, winner in my case. The female contender is the Peruvian president Dina Boluarte, who has somehow made herself even more unpopular than she was in 2022, and the ousted president, uh, Pedro Castillo, which is um, I think she had a popularity of eight percent right now, which is the which is getting to historic lows for uh for Peruvian president, which is saying it's, something. I mean, it's not even it's not even historic lows just for Peru. I think she is the most unpopular incumbent leader in the world at the moment. At the moment. So that is pretty amazing. And and I think the the, the then I asked that question is why is she still in the job? Because I think this category could include uh why is this politician still in a job? And I think for two reasons. One, I think Pedro Castillo actively antagonized Congress, who had the ultimate power and the only power really to remove him between elections, whereas Bidina Boloate hasn't. And I think Congress itself have the antics of Congress over the last couple of years. I just think that unless push really comes to shove, which is what Dina Boloate is frankly not doing, I don't think there's any other alternative for them to turn to, really. And I think that's also what's saving Dina Boluarte. Do you agree with me, Sam? Yeah, I mean, I did note that earlier in the year, there were attempts by Congress to to uh, oust Dina Boluarte as president in the same way that they ousted Pedro Castillo the year prior. But actually, then Congress eventually voted against those proceedings. So there is some element of goodwill there towards her, even if there are widespread protests across the country. There are numerous Latin American governments who don't even recognize her as the president. And her approval rating is 8%, but yet still she carries on. So is she actually a very effective operator? Well, uh, time will tell, isn't it? I wonder if, but there are also proposals to shorten the term to 2024 as well. So that's why I think people are, hold the Congress is holding off because, you know, she might no longer be president by the time we're doing this next this podcast next year um sam we did have some uh conversations between us on some of the other disappointments of the year and i would say that this my nominee for uh, for the worst male politician of the year i think he does deserve this but i think he's also in would you not agree sam potentially one of your hands down winner for potentially the most disappointing politician of the year, which is the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to to look beyond Olaf Scholz for this because the the fortunes of the coalition in the opinion polls are pretty dire. The SPD has had a pretty terrible year across the board in state elections. And actually, Chen, in the last few weeks, we've seen some moves within the FDP potentially towards dismantling this coalition altogether. And I think if that were to happen, there would be an election and the CDU are almost certain, I think, to win back power in this election. So I, I think it is difficult to look beyond Olaf Scholz. Yeah, I think it's really hard to, to look beyond Olaf Scholz. I mean, he, the opinion polls currently show the SPD in uh, fighting with the Greens in fourth position for, for, for third place right now. The CDU has climbed in recent weeks to be above 30% now, so getting close to where they were in 2017. The AFD, particularly in Eastern Germany, they were in 10% at the last time the federal election took place. And they're now above 20%, so they're double. The SPD, you could argue, didn't really have a honeymoon. And they're now polling at 15%, arguably closer to the Greens, who are who ironically are probably the best performing coalition partner because they are roughly maintaining that level of support they had from the last election as they currently do have now. Um, but the SPD has lost over 10%. So they are clearly one of the big looters. And I suspect a lot of their vote has gone probably to the AFD, uh, particularly I suspect in East Germany as well. And now this awkward arrangement, particularly the FDP, much more I would say because the FDP are much more of a laissez-faire libertarian, liberal democratic party. So more ironically, more closer on economic policy, probably to the CDU. They're threatened, the leader has threatened to hold a membership vote of its members in January of the determining the future fate of the Grand Coalition, of the Traffic Light Coalition, I should say. 
And I suspect, would you not agree with me, Seb, that it's partly motivated by A, the FDP is now holding precariously close to their to the 5% threshold, bring probably a lot of deja vu to a lot of FDP members. But it also, would you not agree with me that that membership ballot is likely to give no confidence in the traffic light coalition, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I would be surprised if the membership voted in favour of continuing this coalition. And as, as I said, there is historical precedent for a coalition being collapsed. And in all instances, the Chancellor has submitted themselves to a vote of no confidence, which has eventually led to a either a replacement or a snap election. So potentially, Germany could be heading to the polls earlier than we expect. And do you think as well that the potential, I mean, this German government is unpopular, to say the least, and the potential lack of a punishment for triggering an early election, given its unpopularity, will make it even more like the FDP would pull the trigger? I think so. I think so, because I think the FDP now are, are looking for survival. And, and clearly, they're not getting what they want from this coalition, because Christian Lindner agreed to be the finance minister on the basis that he could be making financial decisions and yet they could barely scrape together a budget. So I, I, I think it's, it's looking pretty precarious. And more importantly, I think the recent German constitutional uh, court decision regarding how Germany treats budget deficits is really the end, particularly the Greens and their ambitious climate spending because they have been hamstrung by a lot by that court decision, isn't it? Exactly. So, so Chen, I had two nominees for this category, both slightly different to yours, but both in terms of pretty poor performances. One being Heather Stephenson, who was the outgoing premier of Manitoba, mainly because she had an absolute disaster in the Manitoban election. She also went into the election with the lowest approval rating of any state premier, with 28% approval actually being her personal best, which was just before the election took place. She ran a pretty negative campaign against Wabkinu. Um, she had corruption allegations against her, criticised for the government's COVID response. And in the end, her party were wiped out in Winnipeg and had a pretty stark decline from one of the largest majority governments in Manitoban history just seven years ago. So I think that's a pretty torrid performance, having inherited a, a relatively good situation. And then, Chern, my other nominee I'd love to hear your thoughts on is the Turkish opposition. I didn't pin this down personally to Kemal Çelic Duraglu, but I think the Turkish opposition in general deserve to be looked into after this election cycle because I think it's safe to say, Chern, that Erdogan, the incumbent president of Turkey, felt eminently beatable heading into this election. Um, there had been a pretty terrible earthquake earlier in the year. Inflation was spiking in three figures. Um, and the opposition seemed lined up to have a pretty good run at it. And I mean, they, they kind of did in that it was the first time that um, a presidential election had gone to a second round. Um, it was the highest individual vote share for any opposition candidate in three elections since it became directly elected. But still, it felt like a bit of a missed opportunity. And we talked a lot at the time about whether it was that they shouldn't have nominated one individual candidate, whether they picked the right candidate, whether they picked the right candidate for uh, religious reasons. And I just think there'll be a lot of analysis about what went wrong in the Turkish election. And that's why the Turkish opposition in general, I've nominated for this award. I think you are absolutely right. I, I don't think you can look past the Turkish opposition as a collective because they decided who the candidate was. And Erdogan was probably for the first time showing political vulnerabilities that he hasn't done so far. And they had a good series of uh, elections in terms of the mayorship in Ankara, in Istanbul, which they won over the, the, the Erdogan's party. So they could point to local election success. But then when it came to the general election, they picked the longtime opposition leader who had been there since 2010 and who has run for the presidency before. So obviously people by that stage would have had a chance to work out whether they liked or disliked him. And they say, Sam, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, but expecting a different outcome. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we have quite a lot of worthy nominees for that award. 
And to be honest, we could go on and on about who potentially uh, who could win this category. But I thought since we're on the subject of Turkey, because Turkey is my Otakia, is my nomination for the most consequential and important election of the year. Because if I were to look back at all the elections we covered this year, and I think the Turkish election did take place in the first half of the year, to me, it was the first sign of how potentially incumbent parties in, shall we call it, less democratic countries could use the entire state apparatus and slightly weak opposition to get re-elected. And this is a model that has been repeated throughout the year, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. And I think also the, the consequences of the opposition not winning this election in terms of the region, in terms of global politics, in terms of what pe the aspirations people had for Turkey as a country were pretty seismic. Exactly. And I think that combination of particularly right wing to far right using religion or cleavages, it really shows you that I think it was really the start of potentially that rise of more potentially right wing populism really beginning this year again. I think Turkey started this trend that we were to observe later in the election of more recently Gil Wilders, Javier Milai, for example. So that's why that consequence for the year, I've nominated Turkey. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty fair as well. I mean, my nominee, Chen, for this award was Poland, mainly because I think the consequences that has not just on Polish democracy, but on the wider region as well and the European Union have the markers of being pretty consequential going forwards because the coalition f led by Donald Tusk has now been officially formed and sworn in and it represents quite a significant change of political direction for a crucial European Union member state. They are the EU's largest Eastern member um, and Tusk and what came before him couldn't be further apart in terms of social, economic and foreign policy directions. We talked about at the time, Chern, that the potential here for now triggering Article 7 of the Treaty on European Union exists because you could impose sanctions on members who were pursuing goals alternative to the shared collective goals of the European Union with a qualified majority, but the suspension of voting rights and representation required unanimity, which until you removed Morietsky and Kaczynski was never going to happen. I mean, unfortunately for the European Union, Robert Fico returned in Slovakia, which is a potential um, thorn in the side of the European Union now that they finally got Poland back. But still, I think it's a big political change of direction because Argentina, Finland, Ecuador, New Zealand, all of them this year saw pretty significant ideological shifts. But Poland, I think, probably has the most consequential political shift for outside of its own borders. I would argue that, I mean, I did think of Poland for this category, but why I nominated Turkey was that for me, Poland definitely domestically, I am 100% in agreement. We have seen, um, you know, there were Polish voters had two stark options. You had Kaczynski and Morawiecki was pro proposing one vision of Poland, which is directly in contrast to another vision of Poland promoted by Donald Tusk. So I agree that it was a consequential voters, particularly for Polish voters as well. But for me, why I thought foreign policy-wise that it, it was not necessarily as monumental as that, it was because, as you said, because of the election of the FICO government. And we have seen how one vote, that being Viktor Orban, would just is a fundamental roadblock on fundamental EU policies. And as and it was difficult to get you session talks be agreed to Ukraine. It was um intentionally or unintentionally. Viktor Orban leaving the room, I believe, to go to the toilet in order for that policy to be passed. You can't quite get two leaders to simultaneously go to the toilet at the same time to get such key pieces of EU legislation passed. So to me, the Polish result and what then could have flown in terms of the flow-on effects, in terms of a revival in liberal democracy in Europe, I just don't think that knock-on consequence was there compared to Turkey. So that's why I didn't think it was as consequential. But I think that's com completely fair. And speaking of Poland, you can't deny, Sam, that for me, 
it was potentially one of the most surprising election results of the year, isn't it? Because the last few polls, and certainly my, our expectation heading into it, was that PIS would probably get historic third term. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. It was it was a pretty surprising election. It, things were pointing in the direction of the potential for Tusk winning this election for some time, and we talked about that in the preview. But I think we'd been so... Um, disappointed previously in similar elections that we just thought in the end things will return to the mean and the law and justice party will probably win another government again and yet actually the polish opposition won fairly comfortably in the end which i think was a shock to to a lot of people and not only that is that i think it was often assumed that turnout differential particularly amongst pis will be relying on older voters who are more likely to vote so a much more likely demographic is that they could potentially outperform opinion polls, but they didn't in the end. So I think that's what also made our expectations. Um, that's what made the results surprising for both of us. Mm-hmm. And the the second surprise, I think you would somewhat. I think for me, runners up in this category was not necessarily that they won, but certainly the margin of victory for Javier Milai in the Argentine presidential election when he won by 54% or 4 to 46%, and a clear first-place victory for potentially the next Dutch Prime Minister, Geert Wilders. So, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Geert Wilders and the Dutch election was one of my nominees for surprising election result of the year, because we've often talked about Geert Wilders and his party as being sort of like close but no cigar, in many cycles since 2010, where he's been talked at, 2017 I think was a particular one where he was talked about as such a big figure going to this election and then came up short to the establishment parties time and time again. And this time he actually came out on top, especially in an election which had been dominated by talk of um, the NSC, that had been dominated by talk of Dylan Yeselgosh taking the VVD further to the right. And yet still, even within those contexts of two increasingly alternative populist options for voters on the right of Dutch politics, it was Geert Wilders' party who won and won big. And that, I thought, was was a surprise. I thought so too. And it was that was one in which the opinion polls had led us to believe one story and the results told us a very different story because I think it was, I don't, more broadly, Sam, could you ever recall an election where there were about four parties with a legitimate shot at first place before the first ballot box was opened? Dylan Yasiko Zagaris, VVD, who who is the party, the outgoing Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, the Green Labour Alliance, NSC, and Guild Voters, Mm, mm. PVV. It was quite astonishing. I mean, I think the closest was earlier this year in Finland, where three parties nearly came first place in Finland, but certainly not four. So, Chen, let's talk about individuals of the year. We have two sort of versions of this. One is Rising Star, which, as we know, I got spectacularly wrong last year. And the other is the Politicians of the Year. Who is your Rising Star of the Year? Would you not agree with me, Sam, that this category was probably the hardest to pick? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And to be honest, I feel my choices, there's a potential, a very high potential to have egg on my face when we next do this. And your potential to laugh at me for my choice is quite high, given my nominee. So I think I'm better caveat that at the start, given our respective history of this category, because... I don't think you can look past two sets of South American elections we covered in terms of upsetting the political tradition, particularly the left-leaning political tradition in both their states, which is um, in second place goes to Daniel Noboa, not having entered Congress till the last election in 2021. Within two years, he's now the president of Ecuador and he rose from nowhere, an absolute no-hoper, to break to becoming president of Ecuador and the youngest president of Ecuador and one of the youngest in the world. So I don't think you can look past that. And potentially as well, which leads me on to my winners, the similar neck of the woods, is Javier Milai being the president of Argentina because he's not even, he he brought the Peronist tradition, which we discussed in our Argentina episode, Sam, as being the one of the absolute dominant political strand in Argentina. I think this is the third time that a centre-right candidate has won. And he's not even a centre-right candidate. He's arguably a libertarian, more far-right strand 
of that. So he has even broken the political mold of how to do it. And he wasn't in Congress till 2021 as well. So this is quite an astonishing rise. And he did it by tapping on to the disenfranchisement, particularly of the youth vote, which does show that I think one is often assumed that a lot of the youth voters tend to vote for center, center-left options. This is one clear ch case when the youth voters clearly opted for the, a right-wing, far-right option. And that potential has, has potential to change how many other far-right parties operate in many other parts of the world. So that's why, for all those reasons, I think he is my rising star of the year. Yeah, I think I... Uh, I... I think I agree with your explanation there, and certainly he's been one of the biggest political stories of the year, certainly the second half of the year. A lot of international coverage of his victory, his the potential policies he'll implement in his presidency and the inauguration as well. So we'll just have to see what's to come for Javier Milai. Chen, I had two nominees. One was sort of like a rising and falling star of the year, which was Peter Limjaronrat of Thailand, who earlier this year completely upset the political establishment by leading his Move Forward party to victory in that Thai general election. And whilst we, whilst he didn't end up becoming prime minister, and whilst we did think that it was unlikely, it did at one point seem like they may be able to get the numbers together, even in a joint sitting of the Thai parliament, to manage to install an opposition-led government in Thailand. Obviously that didn't come to fruition, and we ended up with Treta Tavisin going on to become prime minister in August, with Move Forward being one of the lone players to vote no against that appointment. But still, I think the energy that Peter Limjaronrat brought to that campaign and leading Move Forward to a pretty commanding victory in the House of Representatives, I think was a big political moment for Thailand and could potentially be the precursor to what's to come later down the line. But he did go on to be voted... He did go on to be disqualified from being Prime Minister by the Constitutional Court and is unlikely to stand again, which is hence the rising and falling. But still, I think the consequences long term for Thailand are pretty big in this moment this year. And then my other nominee is new House Speaker Mike Johnson. It took 19 ballots in 2023 to appoint him as Speaker of the House, but I think it's quite impressive to have beaten off Jim Jordan, Steve Scalise and Tom Emmer, some pretty high profile Republicans in the House of Representatives. And to have the secret ingredients to get across the line and still be speaker now in a pretty commanding position, I think is, is credit to Mike Johnson. And whether or not he's speaker when we come to the end of 2024 is a different story. But that may end up being not because of Republican infighting, but because of the Democrats winning the House. And it will be interesting to see whether he can last until that election. Well, I think just a couple of reactions. I think Sam and I will really confess this one thing. Both of us had to Google who Mike Johnson is because we had absolutely no idea who he was. And he's now third in line. And is the... that not the definition of a rising star? It really is. But I think if you talk about how he got there, he is a rising star. But the potential for him to be a falling star is, I think, very high. Because let's be honest, this Republican Party is, for want, I can't think of any better words, ungovernable. They just the factions, particularly the right wing to far right faction of the party, simply is not willing to pass any legislation. And the reality is, is that he's going to have to turn to Democrats to get anything done, even the most basic functions of the House done. And that will further inflame the right and the far right who had the potential to remove him from office. He's only in office because I suspect by the time he got to his nominee as Speaker in that ballot, they were probably everyone wanted to go home probably. And they were just too tired to fight another weekend of the House, of the House Speakership drama continuing because... I think it was, what, another two, three weeks before the House Republican Party from the removal of Kevin Carter's election as Speaker. And frankly, I think everyone had enough by that stage. So I think his potential uh, to be a falling star is quite high. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, probably, probably. And finally, I know we're going to rip in, um, and finally, my comments are Pinja Lim John Rat. I actually agree with you to a large extent. I think he also showed that in particular... 
the poor Thai. Yes, they might regain the prime ministership now, but it could be short-term gain for long-term losses because particularly in urban areas in the north, which used to be their traditional heartland like Chiang Mai, they have, he's shown that it's not, um, it, they are potentially very vulnerable. And this is, and it is only because of Pinjam Lindura and the Move Forward Party. And I should say the only reason why he's no longer in parliament is purely not to his own, um, is probably largely not to his own making, is because the establishment sees him in a threat and has used the court system to try and disqualify him. So I think that's an acknowledgement of the threat that he posed, particularly to the Thai establishment. So I think both the Thai establishment and poor Thai, politically and structurally, this could be one of, it was, I would you not agree with me, Sam, short-term gain for potentially long-term mm, consequences, mm. negative consequences. And have we seen, do you think we have seen the last of Pitala Limjaronra at the top of Thai politics? Possibly, because of the rules. But all I would say is that the ideals they stood for the the i the policies they took forward will probably be in Thai politics for some time to come, and I don't think the establishment has an answer to it, frankly, right now. So Chen, the big ones, politician of the year. Where are we going? Let's start with female because I think male politician of the year was easier for us to do. I think female politician of the year was a bit harder for us to do, and I think. To say time, we've come up with a collective nomination for this one, isn't it? And it's going to be a shared award because I think for us, there was not really one standout. But I think for us, the standout from the three politicians I'm going to name in Georgia Maloney and Mette Fredrickson and Madalena Anderson to a lesser extent are both still at the top of their game in their respective countries. So that's why they deserve the nod, isn't it? Yeah, and let's not forget that our 2022 Female Politician of the Year was Meta Fredrickson as well. So, yeah, I'm going to add another name into the mix, which is Kaya Kalas. Um, I talked to you about this in the last few days, Chen, but where I came to this from is that earlier this year, she won re-election for her party, having taken over mid-term previously, so winning a term in her own right, forming a government with E200 and the Social Democrats back in April. All year... She's been talked up as a potential replacement for Jens Stoltenberg as NATO Secretary General um, and has been at the forefront of European support for Ukraine and their EU and NATO aspirations, respectively, as well. Later in the year, you would start to doubt this nomination because of the controversy surrounding her husband's business links and her having to answer questions for that and her approval rating and her party's performance in the opinion polls tanking. But I think given the fact that that happened over the summer and she's still in post and has since been re-elected as the chair of the Reform Party, I think is testament to her political operations because I think we have a situation now where Kai Kallas is probably going to survive as Estonian Prime Minister and is still being talked up for a big international role. I think it's testament to her ability to operate well as a politician. I think I, all I would say is that the reason why I slightly doubted this is uh, because the the opinion poll suggests that that scandal has really impacted her party's approval ratings. I think reform is polling at like 15%, which if it were to eventually, it would be the lowest score ever for reform in an election since Estonia's return to democracy. So I think that is one caveat I will have on that. And Unlike, let's say, Meta Fredrickson, who changed the composition of a government from the first term to a second term, Meta Fredrickson's Social Democrats are still first in the opinion polls and still by a reasonably comfortable margin, certainly outside of opinion polls. Georgia Maloney is there because she is um, she's leading a big country and her far-right brothers of Italy and the centre-right coalition still polling reasonably well although she's been office a lot shorter than that. And Magdalena Anderson, despite being voted out last year, the Social Democrats are by far and away likely to return to government and could secure one of his best ever election results. So where the party standing is politically now, I just don't think that applies to Kaya Kallas. So that's my one asterisk on what I think is quite a worthy nomination. But Chen, we didn't have similar difficulty with the male politician of the year, did we? No. And Sam, you can't look far from Pedro Sanchez, isn't it? No, I, I don't think so. And I think for quite a number of reasons, because 
Pedro Sanchez's um, trajectory this year, let's just talk about it. So in May, most of the autonomous communities of Spain went to the polls and they had an absolute disaster. I mean, the socialists were left with just Castilla-La Mancha, Navarre and Asturias left in control. They lost control in Extremadura, which has been one of their strongholds across Spain. And then just two months later, they... A general election was won by the People's Party under Alberto Fiju, but the socialist vote held steady, and all through the summer and autumn, they have been negotiating with the Catalan independents. And we end the year with Pedro Sanchez still as Prime Minister, and the People's Party as the ones who are reeling from an election that just five months ago, they actually won. So I think it's quite impressive to have that kind of turnaround. Now, is it short-term gain, long-term loss for Pedro Sanchez? Because support for Cath for um, some pardons for Catalan independence is pretty low in the country. But still, he's prime minister. Still, the socialists haven't tanked in the opinion polls. And he's riding high whilst Alberto Fiju is looking for another job. So this is, I think testament to Pedro Sanchez's political operations in 2023, the fact that he could turn around those regional elections and still end up prime minister at the end of it, which I don't think anyone thought was coming at the start of 2023. And he managed to do a deal with probably one of the hardest coalition partners ever, which is Junts, because the, the socialists really, you know, of all the Catalan parties, they were probably the most hardline. And their want of Catalan independence is probably the most radical compared to some of the other part Catalan-based parties. So the fact they was able to do a deal with them, remaining within and the Spanish framework or arguably the federal structure of Spain, I don't think would be particularly damaged as a result of this deal. I think it's just a remarkable testament to his negotiating ability. And he did this not once, but twice when he first got the job in 2019 as well. So clearly his political instincts are very, very strong. And his ability, particularly on social policy, to enact change, I think has made him one of the worthy contenders for that. I thought, Sam... I mean, potentially, Alberto Fiju could be one of the nominees for worst politician of the year because it was a complete missed opportunity and own goal, the fact that the People's Party didn't win that Spanish election. But still, I think there is a lot of positive praise that could be put on Pedro Sanchez for his ability to turn it around as well. Absolutely. So I think I think that's a very worthy um, victor there. I thought, Sam, we didn't talk about this um, when we talked, but I thought I'd sneak in the name of the Greek Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, particularly on the performance of the first election in May, because let me just read to you now what was happening to Kyrgios uh, Mitsotakos as we head into that. First of all, he was dealing with a electoral system which changed to a fully proportional electoral system. He, During his one term as prime minister, he had the 2022 wiretapping scandal where it was reported that he had used the uh, some of the spying, he was directly under his control to spy on political opponents. There was the Tempe train crash. There were wildfires in 2021 and 2023. And yet, he still, in May 2021, increased the, the per share of the vote in a proportional representation election, which when it reverted to the June election, he then won handsomely with an overall majority. So he won two elections in a year amidst a political environment where he had political scandals, where we saw voters turn away and turf out governments left, right and centre for bringing them through the COVID-19 pandemic. He emerged arguably stronger politically and with the opposition completely at disarray post-election since then. So I think he's also quite a worthy nominee if he didn't get necessarily the headlines that Pedro Sanchez did. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very fair. And funnily enough, I actually did consider nominating Kyriakos Mitsotakis for this award until I remembered that his second election victory was fought under a new electoral system which was actually designed to just hand them a majority. But I think your justification in the first election um, certainly is is worthy. And to be honest, I don't think not for the performance of the first election he would call snap election for very under very the true new system, yeah, isn't it? Very very true because. He, if you do the math, if he did this, he got the same in May. It would have meant an automatic a majority government, which is exactly what happened in June. Yes, yeah. 
fantastic review of the year. But now, probably the most important review of the year. And for the final time in 2023, and it's been an innovation of this podcast, is our quiz, isn't it? Um, oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, if for listeners' benefit, the rules are very simple. Five questions each. Hand on heart. Sam and I have not seen them beforehand. We're, and the rules are, is we'll once again go one each. Um, and we had to pick questions that relate to election and politics that took place in 2023 and it cannot allow for the UK or the US because we talked about those elections and we did a quiz on them in previous podcasts. Now it should be said that I'm 2-0 up so Sam is purely playing for pride so Sam <laughs> would you like to go first or which I or would you, uh, would you want me to go first? Why don't you go first? I went first last time. Okay so, I'll start you off with a true or false question. So, you have a 50% chance of getting it right. True or false, New South Wales Labour won a majority of the seats in the New South Wales election. False. Excellent. That is the correct result. Do you know how... Chris Minns is leading a minority government. I think they, w I think they were about five seats short. I should have put that question because he's actually two seats short. He got 45 out of oh. the 47. And you need 47 right. seats for a majority. But yes... It is false. New South Wales Labour has a minority of the seats. All right, 1-0. Your turn. So I'm going to go for... Who did Bernardo Arevalo beat the Guatemalan presidency in August before the constitutional crisis is potentially going to deny him the presidency full stop? Sandra Torres, the former Guatemalan first lady. Correct. Correct. one all. Question two. Who is the new president of Paraguay who was elected on the 30th of April? Santiago Peña. The confidence that you said that suggests that you had that somewhere, is it? <laughs> well, funnily enough, one of my potential questions to you was going to be about Paraguay as well. So that's why. <laughs> so you probably did look that up. All right, 2-1. <laughs> okay, Chen, this is a... I think this... I... I will be impressed if you get it, because I had to Google it. But who is, following the fifth election in just over two years, the new incumbent Prime Minister of Bulgaria? Well, this can I just say, it's slightly cheating that you, this question, because we didn't talk about Bulgaria. <laughs> um, I will confess I have no idea. Is it, okay, is, if... I can get close there, but I'm not going to give... If I, I will feel... For half mark, is he a former education minister in an earlier uh, government led by uh, the People's Party of Bulgaria? I know there's a power-sharing arrangement, and the second half goes to a European commissioner for, who was a Bulgaria's former education... Uh, Bulgaria's former European commissioner. But is the current prime minister a former education minister in the previous incarnation of government? He is. He is. It's it's Nikolai Denkov, who was former. Edu I mean, I think that's pretty good. Pretty good. So that's I. I'm. I'll give you the mark for that. That's pretty good. And no Google, I should say as well. So whatsoever. <laughs> but I had no clue who his name was. So that was I learned something. So what? So your so your your question is to two me, all. It's oh, it's two all now. Right. Third question. I think this is probably one of. We're stepping up a notch in terms of my difficulty. <laughs> in April 2023, voters in Prince Edward Island went to the polls and returned Dennis King's progressive conservative government in a landslide. In a 27-member legislature, how many seats did he win? And I'm seeing Sam shake his head <laughs> down the video screen. Uh, this is going to be a pure guess. I'm going to say 23. Is that your final answer? Yes. He won 22 seats. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was very close. It's a good for guess. For a complete guess. For a complete yeah. guess. It was 22 seats for the Progressive Conservatives, three seats for the Liberals, two seats for the Greens, and unsurprisingly, both the Liberals and Greens, both their leaders have since resigned. And they're finding <laughs> new leaders. So, But I would say that's a valiant attempt. But <laughs> I would say 3-2 now. Oh, sorry, uh, too old, but now's my turn. Yeah. So, how many autonomous communities did the People's Party pick up 
in Spain's regional elections. Oh my gosh, we really stepped. This is revenge. <laughs> I'll give you one either way. I'll give you one either way. Seven. I mean, that is the point, because the answer is six. They picked up um, Aragon, the Balearic Islands, Cantabria, Extremadura, La Rioja, and Valencia. So I'll give you that. Seven. It was six. <laughs> I'm being generous. I think you came within one of my my progressive <laughs> conservative my progressive conservative <laughs> seat win. So let's call it three all. Um, okay, okay. Fourth question. In June 2023, the National Coalition Party leader, Petteri Oppo, became the new Prime Minister of Finland, replacing Sanna Marin. Which other parties do you form a coalition with? Uh, the Finns party for sure. Yeah. Hmm. I want to say, like, the Christian Democrats. Yes. And... <sighs> I don't know. The center? Liberals? The Swedish first, the F Swedish People's Party. Oh. So I'm afraid even if I try and bend the rules, I can't quite give That's you that okay. one. That's okay. That's um, okay. I might give you a half a mark. So three and a half <laughs> to three. All right, your turn. Okay, so I'm going to turn to Europe as well. Um, in a rare piece of good news for the German SPD this year, which incumbent mayor led their party to an increased seat count in Bremen? Oh my god, you asked me to name him! <laughs> I was going to tell you where he was mayor of! <laughs> for some reason, the name Bovenschultz comes out in my mind, but I'm not quite sure why. Is it Andreas Bovenschultz or something like that? I have no idea why. It is. It is Andreas Bovenschultz. <laughs> okay. Where did you get that from? I have absolutely no idea. It just was a name that came into my mind, but I thought uh... it was some kind of celebrity of name of Iron Ember, but <laughs> clearly my recall yes, powers yeah. is not. So four to three and a half. Yes. All right. Your final question is a multiple choice question. It's a similar question I did last okay, time around. Okay. Is in which of the following presidential elections did the victor win the highest share of the vote? So I'm not looking for the raw number of votes. I'm looking for share. Was okay. it the Turkish presidential election, Ecuador presidential election, or Cyprus presidential election? And I'm only talking about second round. I think it was Cyprus. Because, because Turkey was 52-ish. Ecuador. Oh. I feel like Ecuador was very was 52 as well. So I think Cyprus was the highest. Well, I can tell you that of the three ranking, in last place was Ecuador with 51.83%. Yeah. In Erdogan was 52.3 or something like that. In second place was Cyprus with 51.97%. Oh, come on. In Turkey, it was quite a mean <laughs> question, I will grant you that. <laughs> Turkey is the winner with 52.18%. Oh, nice, nice. But I thought that was interesting, isn't it? Three elections. Oh, it is interesting. Virtually the same shared the vote. So, Chen, even though you've won, <laughs> I'll give you the last question. All right, let's see what Which I is a true or false question. Okay. So true or false, if you include the federal capital territory in the Nigerian presidential election, Tinubu, Abubakar and Peter Obi all won plurality support in the same number of states. True or false? False. So it's actually true. All three candidates, if you include the federal capital territory, won plurality support in 12 states, with Peter Obi carrying 11 states plus the federal capital territory. But Bola Tanubu won way more votes, and that's how he became president of Nigeria. So, yeah, fun fact. I thought two hard questions, and I'm and to be honest, I only to, I thought Obi was one or two less. Yeah, I forgot to consider the federal capital. Yeah. I didn't realize that he won the federal. So there capital you go. Well, that was a great quiz. I think the difficulty suddenly stepped up when we realized to what extent nerd how much political nerds we are, but. Although I'm pleased to have made a clean sweep of it, I have to say that some of those questions were very interesting and it made us reflect on actually <laughs> whilst they were not necessarily the most consequential, most high-profile elections we covered, something like Guatemala and Nigeria, for example, 
in many ways, to so the voters of their own countries, they were pretty consequential elections because the political ramifications of those elections are being felt to this day. And there were certainly, would you not agree with me, some many interesting stories and fun facts that we can take away from uh, from the political year, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, just one example, Nigeria, one of the biggest democratic exercises in Africa. Um, and the election was remarkably competitive and particularly having a three-way race, which is unusual for Nigeria. So it, it maybe is maybe not as competitive in the end this time, but I think it certainly sets up an interesting contest when they go back to the polls in a few years' time. So, yeah, for sure, consequential. And my final question to you, Sam, is what is your go-to meal on Christmas Day? Well, it's Christmas dinner. It's turkey, pigs in blankets and all the trimmings. A, a confession for you now to end 2023 and listeners will judge based on whether we come back in 2024 this is a deal break or not our family doesn't like turkey very much nobody likes turkey but it's what you've got to have <laughs> but there we are but that is it for the latest episode of ballot to talk about do join us again in 2024 when we'll be kick-starting the political calendar by previewing what's to come and i'll forewarn you there's a lot but until then, we'll keep you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world on our Twitter, Instagram and Facebook pages at at ballot underscore talk. And you can also leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. Or you can email any feedback or comments to ballot to talk about at gmail.com. My name is Sam and I wish you all a very happy new year and to those who celebrate a very Merry Christmas. And we'll speak to you very soon. 